This looks like a microcosm of America to me. I didn't vote for Obama, um, basically because I couldn't figure out what his agenda was. He wanted to scream, change, 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 change what? Barack Obama was elected in 2008. I was in the Depression for a week because I knew the country was going to be even further on the skids than it's ever been. Whenever the legislators endeavor to take away and destroy the property of the people or to reduce them to slavery under arbitrary power, they put themselves into a state of war with the people who are thereupon absolved for, from any further obedience. Every time Obama comes on the TV, which I watch Fox News all during the day, I switch the channel to the Hallmark Channel to figure he's gone, then I switch it back. It's the policies, it's the socialism, it's the Marxism. We are done backing up. Done. This president's willing to be obsequious to our adversaries, to denigrate our allies. It's his core philosophy of being anti-American. It's a lot like uh, Germany, you know, post-war, pre-war Germany, when they said, go Hitler, and then they thought, oh, crap, this guy's insane. Next April, we're going to celebrate the commemoration of the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. And if uh, things don't change sometime during that commemoration, maybe it's going to give folks ideas about starting it up again. I can't pace around the house gritting my teeth and taking Xanax anymore. i got to get out here and, and do what I can. And that way when the purges do start, they'll know who I am and where to come find me. May 6th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, my co-host, David Oz. Hi there, everybody. Hey, we start investigative reporting for the first time on Oz. I wondered why you had the green eye shade on today, yeah. Pete. Yeah, the the Ben Hecht look, front mm-hmm. page. Well, you know, my dad was a was a newspaper man. I grew up in the midst of journalism in Cleveland. He was on the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and I remember I'd come home, and there would be these like photographers from the newspaper with like you know the the big speed graphics and mm-hmm. the great big flash bulbs. And my dad was a crime reporter for a while. It was pretty exciting. Boy, know? that really is. All I did with the uh, newspapers when I was a kid was uh, toss them on people's porches. I did that too. Yeah. You know, yeah, I had my Schwinn bicycle and a double bags of the Cleveland Press or the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Yeah, newspaper. yeah. Los Angeles Daily News, Schwinn, yeah, Schwinn bicycle, same thing. Same thing. There yeah. you go, man. That was old, fun. We are truly old school. I guess so. Pedaling down the streets, throwing those newspapers on people's lawns or on their front porches, if you could do it. You know, yeah. I, I accuracy was a big thing in those days. I was good at throwing I wasn't very good at collecting. I didn't like going up and uh, ringing the bell and asking for money. Dogs. There were dogs. Dogs. They yell at you. Yeah, and, mm. and, and, and women who are, are you know, older women who you disturb. But we're, go, we're doing investigative reporting. Okay, back to your newspaper roots, Bergman. Yeah, yeah so uh, we're going to look into this controversy on chemtrails, at least what they're called. Chemtrails. You know, those um, contrail type things that are oh. in the sky. And there, you know, I went up on the web and there's lots of people that think it's a conspiracy. What I didn't find is anybody from the government or all the various other agencies on the web saying, no, it's not. They're just remarkably silent. So I found somebody with a good head who's very, very straightforward on, done a lot of good research. And we're going to start um, section one of, uh, you know, chemtrails in the sky. Chemtrails? Well, oh, I, I, something else to be frightened of. Oh, Pete, please. 
For much of 2009, Michael Ocasio, an executive at ConAgra Foods, watched with concern as the bad news about high fructose corn syrup kept coming. In January, there were studies showing that samples of the sweetener contained the toxic metal mercury. That is bad news. Then came a popular Facebook page that was critical of the syrup. By year-end, there were about a dozen spoofs on YouTube mocking efforts by makers of high-fructose corn syrup to show that science is on their side. But it was pleading comments like this one from a devoted ConAgra customer that finally persuaded Mr. Lacoscio, president of the meal enhancers category at ConAgra, to take action. He's president of the meal enhancers category. Honey, I'm home. I had a real long day meal enhancing. Okay, here's what, he's, here's what she said. said to him. Hunts is by far the best catch-up ever, but please start making a variety without the high-fructose corn syrup wrote Jennifer from New Hampshire. Early this year, she got her wish when ConAgra decided to reformulate one of its biggest brands, replacing the high-fructose corn syrup in Hunt's Ketchup with old-fashioned sugar. This month, new bottles featuring a banner proclaiming, no high-fructose corn syrup arrive in stores. Hunt's Ketchup is among the latest in a string of major brand products that have replaced the vilified sweetener. Gatorade, several Kraft salad dressings, Wheat Thins, Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice, Pepsi, Throwback, Mountain Dew Throwback. What do you mean throwback? Is that kind of like the opposite of upchuck? And the baked goods at Starbucks, to name a few, are now all made with real, regular sugar, which of course is awful for you also if you're... You know, if metabolism is too high, it, it high, makes it higher. If it's too low, it makes it more low. Good old sugar. But at least it isn't corn syrup. All right. What started as a narrow movement by proponents of natural and organic foods has morphed into a swell of mainstream opposition, thanks in large parts to tools of modern activism like Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and movies like Food Inc. and King Corn. As a result, sales of the ingredient have fallen in the United States. Charlie Mills, an analyst at Credit Suisse, says that the combined United States sales of high-fructose corn syrup for Archer Daniels Midland, you remember Archer Daniels Midland, they're the ones that spend most of their time fixing the prices. Tate and & Lyle and Corn Products International were down 9% in 2009 compared with 2007. 9%, man, that is a hit. And a further decline is expected this year. Manufacturers, this is a quote, are tired of hearing about emails, the 800 number calls, and the letter says Phil Lempert, editor of Lempert Report, which focuses on supermarket trends. People don't want it, so why fight them? I don't have an answer for that. The Corn Refiners Association, which represents makers of the syrup like ADM, Archer Daniels Midland, <laughs> Cargill and Corn Products International, has spent the last six years trying to convince Americans that high fructose corn syrup is a natural ingredient made from corn. That's really no different from sugar. Corn not different from sugar. Apple not different from oranges. Let's move on. High fructose corn syrup is singled out because it is still one of the biggest sources of calories in our diet and because it is made from corn, a lavishly subsidized crop that appears in one way or another in so much of our food. Yeah, go to the supermarket and see where you can find high fructose corn syrup. It is everywhere. And by the way, it is the king of what they call empty calories. Now, sugar is also accused of being an empty calorie, but here's the difference. Corn syrup is empty because it does not satisfy. It tastes sweet, 
but it does not satisfy sugar requirements within the system. So, you know, three seconds later, you hungry again. According to the NPD Group, a market research firm, more than half of all Americans, 53%, now say they are concerned that high fructose corn syrup may pose a health hazard, up from 40% in 2004. Oh, my. Imagine if you're sitting there at Archer Daniels Middle and, you know, you take a day off from price fixing and, you know, from, you know, putting monosodium glutamate in as many foods as you can. And you say, my golly, look at this. Corn syrup is getting, why, corn syrup is more unpopular than Obama and the Congress. High fructose corn syrup, which they refer to as HFCS, is often talked about as being more problematic, a more problematic source of empty calories. Historically, the rise of obesity came at about the same time that HFCS became a very inexpensive food sweetener. This meant that along with other sweeteners, intake increased and boosted the daily calorie count of many Americans, a rise of about 350 to 500 extra calories a day from all the caloric sweeteners combined. Ooh, my fat... America, diabetic America, sick America. Don't you dare give me health reform. Don't you dare help me become normal and well. I like it this way. Leading scientists, however, say that the product, made from various chemicals, convert cornstarch into syrup. It's not any worse than sugar. Both sweeteners are made up of roughly equal amounts of glucose and fructose, they say. Such defenses, however, don't hold much sway with people like... uh, Ivan Royster, 27, who runs Ban of HFCS, a Facebook page that has 120,000 fans. Like many people who get a creepy feeling about high fructose corn syrup, Mr. Royster points out that it is a highly processed ingredient that was invented in the late 1960s and introduced into the food supply in the 80s. I didn't realize that it's so recent. Well, of course, the obesity problem has just it's just blossomed, bloomed, shot up. Probably these are the right metaphors for obesity. In March, his Facebook page lit up after a study from Princeton University gave credence to the idea that high fructose corn syrup might, in fact, be worse than sugar. Quote, our bodies have been adapted over the years to metabolize sugar, which is natural, Mr. Royster says, but the body doesn't know what to do with high fructose corn syrup. Even though the Corn Refiners Association is losing ground to people like Mr. Royster, it's not giving up the fight. Uh, but by the time an ingredient is pillared on Facebook and YouTube, it faces an uphill battle. Mr. Lempert, the supermarket expert, puts the corn refiner's chances of turning around consumer sentiment at exactly zero. Well, here you go, and there you go. You're back, and I'm still here. I'm Billy Flanagan, and today you'll stick with me and we'll find out how to achieve the kind of thing on canvas that the truly insane seem to come up with with little or no effort or thought. There's a color there. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter what color it is. Haven't you admired those loony eyes on the tramps, you know, or, or the strange figures in the art of the insane that you find selling for high prices in art centers in the big cities? Well, none of that is as hard as it seems. So today... I'd like you to go along with me today. Try this. Take some of that paint. Let's try another tube here. There we go. There's a big blob of it. I think that's called green, maybe. Not sure. It doesn't matter. It's not as hard as it seems to achieve truly insane effects on canvas without growing through that rigorous training that the insane must go through in those institutions in which they're kept. 
Now I'm going to show you today how to do it. You'll be standing on your head. Don't try that. It would be insane. Let's take out our canvas. One of my favorite techniques is to pee all over a fresh canvas before you paint on it. It yellows the background and it gives it a smell that'll put you in the mood to recreate some art of the insane. Just using my hairdryer on it here and you notice when you put the hairdryer on it, the smell really becomes almost unbearable. And it particularly helps when, you, when you're painting the eyes to have this wafting up. Smell puts you right there in the attic or the dungeon or wherever you like to imagine the insane artist. He's painting, he's scraping, he's peeing, you get the feeling. There, that's just right. Now let's take some more paint here, thank you. How about this color? Doesn't matter. And I'm using a brush here. You'll notice this brush has a number on it. Doesn't matter what number it is, who cares? As long as there's some number on it, that gets the job done. You wet the brush here and you roll it. There you go. It all looks orange to me. And you just then wipe it on your pants, if you're wearing pants. And if you're not, just squeeze it between your legs, because we're sure to find a clever use for it later. Some sky, I like sky because it signals to you and to me we're outdoors, but to the insane artist it signals something that's above all the insane stuff that we're going to put on with this trowel here and some other color. Let's use this one, slap it on. We're getting those crazy eyes here, you see. Let's put a hat on that scarecrow. A death's head, I like that. I'll make that a black gardenia, I think. There we go, pee all over it. And before you know it, You've got something that'll look real nice, stacked up with a bunch of pictures of old people at a yard sale or a rummage mall. Well, thanks for being with me. I'm Billy Flanagan. Ooh. Next week on oh. Art oh. of the Insane. Oh, For most of American history, a Supreme Court with no Protestant Christian judges would have been unthinkable. Nearly three-quarters of all justices who've ever served on the nation's high court have been Protestant, and roughly half of all Americans identify themselves today as Protestants. But since John Paul Stevens announced his retirement last month, legal and religious scholars have begun entertaining the unprecedented prospect of a Supreme Court without a single Protestant justice. Besides Stevens, who is Protestant, the current Supreme Court counts six Catholics and two Jews. It's an amazing irony given how central Protestantism has been to American culture, said Stephen Prothero, a religion scholar at Boston University. For most of the 19th century, he said, Protestants were trying to turn America into their own heaven on earth, which included keeping Jews and Catholics from virtually all positions of power. Many religious scholars attribute the decline of Protestants on the high court to the breakdown of a mainline Protestant identity and to the absence of a strong tradition of lawyering among evangelical Protestants. Quote here, mainline Protestantism isn't a pressure group, said Prothero. It's not like the National Council of Churches is lobbying Obama to get a Lutheran appointed to the Supreme Court. And while Judaism and Catholicism have their own uh, sets of religious laws that date back millennia, many branches of Protestant Christianity do not. I mean, for much of the last 150 years, evangelical Christianity has stressed an emotional theology of heart overhead, not a recipe for producing legal scholars with eyes fixed on the Supreme Court. Evangelicals have put more effort into getting elected than in getting onto the bench, said Michael Lindsay, a Rice University professor who has studied evangelical elites. Electoral politics is more similar to the style of rallying around a revival campaign than it is to the arduous journey of producing intellectual giants that could be eligible for the Supreme Court. 
President Obama is expected to nominate Stevens' replacement soon. Of the three candidates who are reported to lead Obama's shortlist, two, Solicitor General Alina Kagan and Federal Appeals Judge Merrick Garland, are Jewish, while one, Federal Appeals Judge Diane Wood, is a Protestant. Obama's first Supreme Court appointee, Sonia Sotomayor, is Catholic. One explanation of Catholics and Jews' high court agronomy is that members of both traditions have long pursued legal degrees as a way to assimilate into a majority Protestant country. Most American Catholic law schools were not formed to be elite institutions of lofty legal scholarship, but as a way to respond to the fact that other law schools were excluding Catholics, said Richard Garnett, a professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School. It was a vehicle to get Catholics into the middle class. Early on, those schools admitted a lot of Jewish students who were being discriminated against, Garnett said. Today, Catholic law schools at Georgetown University, Fordham University, and Notre Dame are considered among the best in the country. Evangelical Protestant colleges, meanwhile, including Regent University and Liberty University, founded by Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell, respectively, have opened law schools only since the 1980s. And law schools with Protestant roots, like Harvard and Yale shed their religious identities a long time ago, part of the broader fading of a distinct mainline Protestant identity in the U.S. Some legal and religious scholars say the, the dearth of qualified evangelical candidates for the Supreme Court came into sharp relief in 2005 when President George W. Bush nominated White House Counsel Harriet Myers to the high court. Myers, an evangelical Christian um, who the White House promoted strenuously among other evangelicals, well, her, her nomination was brought down largely by conservatives, non-evangelicals mostly, who said she was not qualified for the position. In the last couple of decades, however, more evangelicals have been pursuing legal degrees, uh, including at elite colleges. Quote, there are now vibrant Christian fellowships at Harvard and Yale, said Lindsay. Ten years from now, it would be entirely possible to see an evangelical Protestant on the Supreme Court. Rachel Heflin, a senior at Patrick Henry College, a Virginia school whose students are mostly evangelicals from homeschooling backgrounds, said many of her friends are heading to law school next year. She says, when your circle of friends is comprised of aspiring lawyers, the joke is about who's going to make it to the high court first, said Heflin, an evangelical Christian who will be attending George Washington University Law School on scholarship, which means that a Protestant Supreme Court resurgence may be not that far off. I have no problem with a Protestant on the Supreme Court. Mainline Protestants, Lutherans, you know, Anglicans, uh, whatever, um, they believe in the separation of church and state, just like Catholics and Jews do. But evangelicals, now that's a problem. Evangelicals, most of them believe that the Bible is inerrant. That's what they tell me. You read it word for word. That's it. That's God's word. Even though there's lots of stuff in that Old uh, Testament that's like really screwy. And then there's the question of which Bible are they reading? Is it the King James Bible? Is it the Comic Illustrated Bible? Is it the backwards Bible for blind Satanists? I mean, what Bible are they reading? In any case, they bring that kind of Ayatollah thinking with them. And if they bring it to the Supreme Court, oh my, oh my, I shudder to think of a Supreme Court justice who decides that his or her reading of the Bible is equal to or greater to his or her reading of the Constitution. God's law over man's law. Not a good idea.
Lately I've been feeling old Feel it in my bones Feel it in my fingertips, you know I Feel it in my toes Don't feel much good for nothing anymore And I think it shows And another sunset Got a wife who loves me She tells me all the time I Got a boy who's good to me You know he would Give me his last dime And I don't understand it all I've been thinking about a life of crime And another sunset Is a homicidal menopausal ditch I've fallen here? And I'm feeling suicidal. I think it's time to sink or swim. Yesterday, we used to play and sing. Said he let the music die, you know, couldn't play a goddamn thing. And inside, he looked so sad, like a part of him was gone. And it's another sunset. I'm on the phone with Scott Wild, Radio Friaz's guru of social networking. And Scott, we the last time we spoke, we we got kind of a general history of social networking. But what I want to know right. now, oh by the way, hi. <laughs> how are you? How are, how are you, Peter? <laughs> You're out there in Bismarck. Is it is it as cold as it is here on Whidbey Island? You know, actually it's uh we have a really nice day. We it is so windy here right now though. Uh, that's that's what we deal with a lot is is just major wind. We're in a high wind warning, if you will. Oh yeah, well we were yesterday, by the way. In fact, I could hardly get in the studio because there were trees down everywhere. So oh well, I guess Rick Perry, the uh, uh, governor of Texas, would say that's an act of God. The way he said that the <laughs> the oil the oil rig disaster <laughs> was an act of God. I love that. All right, well we'll get into that later. Okay, here's well, the thanks thing. for the wind, anyways. <laughs> yeah. 
a lot of people listening to Radio Free Oz are in business or are starting businesses or are going to be interviewing, you know, to, to get a job. And social networking is going to come up, you know, in the lives of all of these people because social networking is different from the old media marketing. What is the difference between the social network model and the old marketing media model? Well, you know, when you look at traditional media, which is your radio, print, and TV, which you've had experience with in the past, I mean, with all of your products and Firesign and all of that, you definitely use those traditional means to get the message out. And, and the people, it's important for people to understand what the difference is between traditional media, which is that radio, print, and TV, and the social media, which is your website, your blogs, your Twitter, your Facebook. And the first difference is that traditional media is a monologue. It's a one-way dialogue. Mm-hmm. You typically get your message and you push it out. It's like being in church. You've got to listen. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So in traditional media or your social media is not a monologue. It's a dialogue. You can still push the same message out, but now you have an opportunity for a dialogue, and I can get feedback immediately from you. It might be in the form of a blog comment, or maybe I can have you click on a link and fill a form out, or you can uh, forward it on to someone, or you can start a conversation, not even just with me, but even some of the other people that are consuming my products and services. So you can create a community of people that are dialoguing about your information. The other thing is that traditional media is about getting attention. Mm -hmm. You need to cut through the clutter. I mean, how many different messages are we bombarded with every single day? And we have to cut through the clutter. We have to make sure that we can interrupt what they're currently doing and pay attention or stop stop the TiVo from, you know, whipping past our commercial and even look. I mean, they're even shooting commercials for that now so that they're visually appealing enough to stop during someone fast-forwarding through TiVo. But so you have to get their attention. Your social media is not about getting attention. It is about giving attention. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, when they come, you know, Think of when I, I used to consult with web companies when they were building new sites, whether small mom and pops or the large corporations, they were so focused on what their site looked like and, and the font color and the right image. But you know what? None of the content on there actually was of value to the people coming to the website. Mm-hmm. It was all internal centric information. It was their mission statement on the homepage. You know, that's just, you know, I always ask people, are you adding value to the web or are you just validating yourself in the industry? Good. A very good question. Yeah. Yeah. You need to, you need to give them attention. You need to say, Hey, what are you here for? Let me get you to that page so we can convert you from being a site visitor into someone that has a relationship with me. So you need to, you need to get, you don't need to get their attention. They already came looking for you. They probably typed your name in a search engine and clicked on a link or typed in your web address, you know, they found your web address through the traditional media, your radio, print, and TV. Now they're on your website. Now it's time to give them attention and to say, what problems or issues do you have that I can solve for you? Well, that may, of course, that makes the, the business uh, much more responsive. It means that you have to turn out product that's, that's not crap because lots of people will give it no stars at all. And, exactly. and, and in the old days, so-called old days, in the old format, I'd, I'd, I'd advertise. The only way I knew that people were, were listening is that they could, when they call in, they could mention my name to get a deal or I could get... I could get somebody to take a poll. It was it was fairly useless and very expensive. Now, one of the nice things about social media is that, you know, I think, Scott, that things are going to tighten continuously for the next five years. We're going to have to learn to do more yep. with less. And one way to yep. do that is through a social media community. 
You know, if I want to know how to get more out of product A, I can learn from you, the person who produced it, and also from the community, the interest community that's using that product. And that's got to be helpful. Absolutely. Well, one thing that social media does is it turns us from being content consumers into content producers. Ah. We can actually have our audience generate some of the content. If you look at some of the Super Bowl ads that were created this year, like the Doritos ad, that was actually shot by just John Q. Public. I mean, they had a contest, produce the best Doritos ad, and it'll be our Super Bowl ad. Oh, really? I had, you know, I had no absolutely. idea. Yeah, we, I've seen contests online. There's contests on every day online where they'll give, companies will give you $10,000 for the best two-minute ad describing their product. So what that does is it not only gets some really high-quality commercials coming in, sometimes not high-quality, but you, know, you get these film students that are, are hungry and they're creating this great content. But more importantly, they're telling you, Peter, what they think of your product, and they're using their language. So you can actually start filtering out some of the, the customer-centric keywords that people use to describe your product. Well, now that's what you can use on your website so that you can get found in the search engine. Very smart. Very smart. Okay, Scott, uh, in our, when we get together again, we're going to talk about the plans you have for Radio Free Oz in the social media uh, uh, market. And, and, of course, this will be, of course, instructive to the people listening who face some of the same challenges. So I can't, I can't wait to, to talk with you again. It's Scott Wild at wildinspired.com. He's our social media guru. Talk to you soon, Scott. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Think your children are as innocent as a new puppy next door? Well, they know something you don't know. They know that their American forefathers took drugs. And you probably don't even know where your father is. I wanted the woods and the Indians to sleep with me. But I was afraid of the cold and made them sleep outside. So I never felt the touch of a warm, naked Indian, or, or in a cold, naked forest. Ben Franklin, the only president of the United States who was never president of the United States. Was he an early drug user? Let's see. He wrote of it in Poor Dick's Conspiracy in 1761, while still an apprentice bookmaker in colonial Philadelphia. So I betook me to the Hashfire Inn for a secret caucus of the hotheads, rebellious libertines all lusting for life and liberty. The real George Washington brought to him, and all in the evening papers. We frickly proceeded to get Sarah Meadows and young Tom Everson goodly stretched by the hemp, which smoked us all like Boston scrub. What a fetid fervor of freedom. I say, let's have a revolution. It was finally Sam, the tax collector, to which Big Ben replied, Fine, Sam. Then we can invite over a bunch of immigrants and make cars. Yes, 1761. Hemp. Kindled the fires of American history. Well, BP is doing everything they can to contain this 
ecological disaster for which they are totally responsible. They're building a containment dome, a four-story, 70-ton structure that the company plans to lower into place over one of the three leaks to catch the escaping oil and allow it to be pumped to the surface. What about the other two leaks? Well, when the company tried to install a shutoff valve at the site of one of the leaks recently, they found that the seas were too rough, therefore delaying the effort. And heavy winds damaged miles of floating booms laid out in coastal waters to protect the shoreline from the spreading oil slick, which is drifting towards the Alabama and Florida coasts and the Chandelier Islands off Louisiana's southern tip. Recently, lawyers representing environmental groups, workers from the oil rig, and fishermen who've been hurt by the leak leveled fresh accusations against BP as well as Transocean and Halliburton. Hmm, Halliburton's back. BP leased the rig from Transocean. Halliburton was providing several services on the rig, including cementing, which is a method of sealing the well to control pressure from the oil and gas beneath. I mean, if there's a scandal, Halliburton's got to get in. At least one worker who was on the oil rig at the time of the explosion on April 20th and who handled company records for BP said the rig had been drilling deeper than the 22,000 feet, even though the company's federal permit allowed it to go only 18,000 to 20,000 feet. Hmm. BP strongly denied the claim that it was drilling deeper than was allowed. The allegation surrounding the permitted depth is factually incorrect, said Andrew Gowers, a BP spokesman. Mr. Gowers said that the rig was permitted to drill to 20,211 feet and it drilled to 18,360 feet. Well, we'll see where that goes. Another worker familiar with the rig told the lawyers that the company had chosen not to install a deep water valve that would have been placed about 200 feet under the sea floor. Much like blowout preventers, devices that are meant to seal leaks, this valve could have served as a cutoff of last resort in explosions. This is what the lawyer said. Hmm. The company took their chances in not having the valve so they could save money, said Mike Paparatoni, one of the lawyers representing the shrimpers and fishermen. When workers released the last valves that were holding back the natural gas that had built up in the well, the gas shot up the pipe and sprayed into the drilling rig, igniting the fireball that caused the deaths of 11 workers, injured others, and sank the rig. This according to the lawyers. BP and Halliburton declined to comment on the accusations. Oh, man. You know, this is just, this, is, this, this was a disaster waiting to happen. Why in the world are we drilling under the ocean offshore? How, how, how many miles would each of us have to sacrifice if we gave up the oil that came from offshore drilling? Uh, how many lights would we have to turn off? Uh, how many electrical, I don't know, use a lot of electricity to make aluminum. How many lawn chairs would I have to give up to make up for all of that oil that they're pumping under the ocean? I got to ask myself that question. You know, we live, we live in the age of electricity. Oil, 80% of oil is not used to drive cars. It's used to produce electricity. So we're going to have to reduce our electrical needs if we're going to reduce our dependence on oil. Hmm, waiting for that electrician or someone like him? Well, this is a man-made disaster. I mean, how else can you look at this? Well, if you're Governor... Rick Perry of Texas, uh -oh. he claimed that the oil rig explosion, mm -hmm. which caused this huge spill, is just an act of God no. and could not have been prevented. He was speaking at a conference at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, so he said it publicly, and, and um, 
He said, this is an act of God, and we don't know what the event that has allowed for this massive oil. To, we don't know what the event that allowed for this massive oil to be released, he said. Yeah, they punched about? a hole in the bottom of the ocean, and there's 200,000 gallons of oil coming out every day. What do you mean they don't know what? And he is? says, until we know that, I hope we don't see a knee-jerk reaction across the country that says we're going to shut down drilling in the Gulf of Mexico because the cost to this country will be staggering. It is a lot of oil that's coming out of the Gulf of Mexico, Pete. A lot, and, and it's it's... It's, going, it's possibly going to take out all the oysters and all the shrimp and all the wetlands and all because BP and Halliburton mm-hmm. and Transworld, some lovely people, right, basically just blew it. They kicked the can, man. It's interesting that there's this, what, 15, 20-foot item at the bottom of the ocean, 5,000 feet down, that has got five or six different uh, fail-safe cutoffs to it. One will, you know, knock the head off, the other knocks the feet off, then they punch in the eye, it's done, you know? Fail-safe, all of their fail-safes failed. Failed, failed. And they think that one of the reasons it's failed is because Halliburton, aha! Remember them? I thought they were the Z Corporation or something. No, that's those other guys, right? I mean, probably during Dick Cheney's, you know, chairmanship, right? Mm -hmm. I put the wrong kind of concrete or not enough or too much. Who knows? But where Halliburton is, disaster is not far behind. So this this is this is quite well. Awful. Now, does Governor Perry does he own stock here? I mean, is he uh, uh, worried about because lawsuits are really piling up now against all of those people and anybody else that they can possibi blame? Well, act of God is a legal term, force majeure. Yeah, yes, and, and and blowing a valve off a you know off a off a rig is not an act of God. That's human error. Yeah, not, and you got to pay for that. Not being able to stop that hurricane from hitting the coast, definitely human error. Absolutely not. Well, in fact, uh, all the hurricanes and, and 9-11 and all that stuff, according to Falwell, wasn't it? Or was it Robertson that says, it happened because God lifted his veil of prof- protection from the United States because of gay marriage or something like no, that. No, gay marriage, that's, that's, that's Do it. Do you think that's that gay it. marriage caused the uh, the spill in the Gulf of Mexico, possibly? I'm, I'm still back there with the guys debating abortion. I mean, did, haven't we had that debate already? That debate, it, that debate will never end because it cannot be resolved. No one can prove one way or the other. It's a political decision, right? You can yeah, be always. for it or against mm-hmm. it, but you can't prove that that life begins here or life doesn't begin there. You just have to take a stand. I think what Rick Perry, what we're looking at is more evangelicalism. No, I do. Evangelicalism. Because he sees it all as an act of God. He's playing to the evangelical Uh electorate. uh That's going to put him where? In the Senate? In the White House? That we really don't bear any responsibility for taking care of the things that we do because if an accident happens, it's not our fault. No, and in fact, remember, what was his name? Uh, Watts, the uh, Secretary of the Interior under um, Reagan, who Mm -hmm. said, well, we're stewards of this planet. We can do anything we want to with it because Christ is going to return and restart it, refresh it. It's all going to come back. Kickstart it, God. Kickstart it. Start now. A while ago, I became aware of a controversy about these things called chemtrails, uh, long streaks in the sky that people say are poisonous chemicals that the government or someone like like them is uh, spraying for whatever reason, and it's causing all kinds of negative effects. And I decided, well, is this just another one of Art Bell's conspiracies? Is this like alien autopsy, et cetera, et cetera? So I went up on Google University to take a look, and I was surprised to find how much 
how much information or disinformation there was up there on the subject. And I decided to find someone who appeared to be more into the science than the scare of it. And I came up with Rosalind Peterson, who's the president of the Agricultural Defense Coalition. And I have Rosalind on the phone now. Hi there. Good afternoon. And welcome to Radio Free Oz. Um, Rosalind, tell us, tell us about the Agricultural Defense Coalition. Tell us about your work in this general area and, and give us a history of this whole chemtrail happening, whatever it might be. Okay? Go, go right ahead. Yes. Well, in 2002, I began investigating what was going on in the skies in Mendocino County in Northern California. And I began to realize right away when I started watching the skies that there was something wrong, that these huge... Uh, jet plumes um, were expanding. Uh, many of them were different in shape and form. They were turning into man-made clouds and white haze. And so I started a research project, and in 2002, I put up CaliforniaSkyWatch.com so that people could see the pictures and I could write some information about what I was seeing and what was going on as I did research. And my research produced so much information in the last eight years that I put up the agriculturedefensecoalition.org. And on that website, I have put most of my research information up so that anybody can look at the government documents. They can look at research studies. They can look at the scientific, pardon me, scientific aspects of this. And what I did was I decided that I would share with people all the information that I knew or could find in researching government documents, um, in other words, university studies, everywhere. I went to water data, everything. And, and what did you discover in general? And what I discovered in general was that um, our skies are hardly ever clear deep blue anymore. They're a maze of crisscrosses, um, X's, uh, expanding plumes, white haze, and what NASA calls um, uh, man-made clouds. And NASA has done many studies, um, so, and there are university studies as well, which show that the jets, these jet engines are producing uh, contrails that expand, sometimes cover 4,000 kilometers, can last up to 20 hours, that's just one contrail, and that um, they're beginning to have an effect on photosynthesis uh, because they stop direct sunlight from reaching the ground. They're, NASA says that they're exacerbating global warming because part of the product of a jet engine is water vapor. They're changing the climate, and they're also negatively impacting natural resources. Let me ask you a question so, at this point, just one thing, which is uh, sure. jets have been around for a long time, all right? They've been flying over us forever. And, but I don't remember hearing or seeing anything about these great plumes and crisscrosses until, as you say, within the last decade or so. Is it because engines have changed, or is it, is it more than just particulate matter coming out of jet engines? I have to know. Is, is, that, is that basically the source of this problem? Well, starting in around 1988 or 89, as far back as I can see, uh, jet contrails took on a new configuration. They began to persist like never before. They weren't short and dissipated very quickly within um, 30, 60 seconds or so. Mm -hmm. 
the jet fuel, the jet, type of jet fuel that the military was using had changed from JP-4 to JP-8 or JP-10 al alongside that same time frame. And that um, we began to see something that persisted for longer and longer periods of time. And the plumes were different in type. Uh, they were not only producing white haze, but they were producing black contrails as well. So we began to suspect from looking at them, watching the dissipation rates, watching one side of a jet leaving one type of plume and the other side of the same jet leaving a different type of plume, that we began to suspect that there was more um, here than just met the eye. And so that's why I started doing the research in 2002. And did you come up with, in general, because we're going to have more than one segment on this, of course, Rosalind, what did you discover in your research about, about the, these jet engines? Was it just more than, was it more than you expected? Is there more there than meets the eye? Yes, I think there's more there than meets the eye because uh, the Air Force is involved in um, obscuration techniques, different use of different types of smokes. Um, they're using aluminum-coated fiberglass particulates and dumping tons of it on us all the time, not only in the United States but around the world. They call it chaff. Oh, well, I began to... You know, chaff, is, is, is that is, that's a protective technique, right? It's anti-missile as far as I know. Well, what it is is they put up chaff as a particulate hmm. um, in order to um, disrupt radar to track weather fronts um, for military um, practice purposes. So there's a number of reasons to put up aluminum-coated fiberglass in the air. So the problem a, is... Yeah, what's the problem? Yes, sorry. The problem is it's a particulate. The problem is that it stays up in the air for about 20 hours, and then when it comes down, uh, we, get, we can inhale these particulates, and so can animals. Well, I, there's, I have a little uh, part of the information you sent me. There's an individual in uh, Mount Shasta who did some um, uh, testing of the rainwater and found that the aluminum levels were remarkably high, sometimes 50,000% higher. Uh, so there's something going on here. And in our next, our next get-together on the air, we'll talk further about this. Thank you so much, Rosalind. Uh, you know, we'll be back tomorrow, okay? Okay, thank you. Okay, bye. your soul and free your mind when you turn a corner take a look you see your life is an open book
Before we wind up, Dave, time for another neologistic poem. These are new words, at least new to me when I got them. And this is a word that probably everyone has seen one of these uh, but doesn't know what to call it. It's like the, you know, like the word for the tip of your shoelace that you never remember but shows up in crosswords. Okay, this is CAPTCHA. Words smeared in a box on the screen for you to figure out if you're alive. Completely automated public Turing test to tell computers and humans apart. Thanks for the acronym, but it's a dumb game and 
you can't dance to it. Oh yeah, that's Oz for today. Radio Free Oz, Oz in your ears. All brought to you by the fabulous Oz team. John Cumming, king of ones and zeros. Phil Fountain, head of the Oz Design Group, keeping it all real chic. Tom Gedwillow is our webmaster. Dave Maloney, our audio engineer. Bill McIntyre is the producer. Scott Wilde, head of social media. My co-host is David Osman, and I'm your host, Peter Berger. See you tomorrow.